So you get to this fundamental and very interesting metaphysical question. Is cryptocurrency different? Is it something where we can say, nope, you can apply the old tests and just move on? Or is there something that's fundamentally different about it that says, actually, we need different legislation because our securities laws and regulations and our commodities laws and regulations and our payments laws and regulations don't quite work for what it does. I'm very firmly in that latter camp. I do not think the regulations work for what is essentially software, but that is programmable so that at times it can take on the nature of a payments instrument or a commodity or a security or a future or a derivative or any one of a number of things or combine them and be that and then not that and then that again. Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future because your future is now and it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I speak with attorney Jason Gottlieb, partner in the law firm of Morrison Cohen's business litigation department. He's chair of its white collar and regulatory enforcement practice group, and his practice focuses on regulatory enforcement, litigation, and arbitration relating to securities, crypto assets, commodities, futures, and derivatives, and structured finance. One of the really interesting parts of Jason's past that leads up to his level of expertise is doing a wide range of defense for companies and individuals and investigations and enforcement actions conducted by the complete alphabet soup of governmental and regulatory agencies, including, of course, the SEC, the CFTC, the Department of Justice, various attorneys general, FINRA, which is interesting. So I'm thinking he kind of knows something about this topic that I wanted to speak with him about today. We were trading messages on the Bird app. And so I invited Jason on to discuss the crypto legislative and regulatory environment, some of the biggest enforcement actions during and after the crypto contagion year that shall not be named. And also, and most most importantly, in the absence of clear legislation from Congress and rules, certainly from regulatory agencies, I want to discuss the concerns and, and problems with regulation on a case-by-case examination or what we call regulation by enforcement and basically whether that approach really achieves the goals as we think of the innovation, but also the regulation in capital and, and credit markets how to protect certainly investors and consumers, but ensure robust markets and and really a robust workforce today and in the future. So we'll talk about all of that in the next three minutes, Uh, (laughs) all of that (laughs) and more in a moment. But first, Jason, welcome. Thanks so much, Professor Evans. It's great to be here with you. I've been a longtime follower and admirer of your posts on Twitter so it's uh, really great to to finally get to meet you and I will I would love to talk about crypto regulation. 
I talk about it 24-7, whether <laughs> anyone's around to listen to me or not. So happy to have someone who's crazy enough to want to listen. Absolutely. You get me. This is my love language. And I really think, <laughs> and through conversations like this, I just know we're going to help a lot of people there, you know, on all sides of the issue. So I really enjoy speaking to lawyers in particular in the space because we're in charge of so much on my side, certainly educating the next wave of lawyers and doing sometimes consulting with policymakers. And for you, really working with corporations and also individuals, really trying to figure out a space that's also trying to figure itself out, which is that that that's that lawyer in 101. This is good old fashioned lawyering, <laughs> to be sure. So before we even get into, you know, a few of the high points, I thought before the crypto contagion really caught hold some of the bipartisan legislation that started to bubble up in 2022. I remember kind of this time last year, I was brimming with enthusiasm about the power and the potential of bipartisan efforts in the space. And we'll talk about how we kind of things have slowed down a bit. But before we even get there, you've been practicing for a long time. You don't look like it. I get the pleasure, folks, of seeing him. Um, <laughs> When you're in this space, you just age well. I don't know why. <laughs> it's the magical what, internet money. <laughs> what does Indiana Jones say? It's not the years, it's the mileage. There you go. <laughs> right, right. Young on the outside, but I'm very old on the inside. But I digress. So how did you maneuver your practice? Because you, I mean, you had experience at a broader level with regulatory enforcement and things of that nature, but then finance and tech had a baby and all of a sudden we had crypto assets and we had people trying to figure it out. How did your practice have to calibrate to meet the demands for this topic? Right. For me, it's a very natural progression. So I've been practicing for over 20 years now, and most of my career was a very traditional securities and commodities litigator or regulatory enforcement defense lawyer. But I've always had an interest in the tech sector. I'm a longtime tech nerd. Like mm -hmm. I do all my apartments for money buying an Apple IIc. That, that yes. goes to tell you how long I've been a tech nerd. Mm -hmm. And before I went to law school, I worked at a tech company in Japan. It was a computing and internet company where we were, you know, helping people roll out the upgrade from their 26K baud modems to the 56K baud yeah. Really, really <laughs> a big, big technology there uh, compared to what we have today. So I've always been interested in the intersection between technology and litigation, and particularly enforcement litigation. When the government comes and says, hey, wait a minute, we've got an issue with this technology. We think you're doing something that violates the law. So in the wake of the financial crisis, in the midst of doing all of the structured finance litigation I was doing for all of the big banks so back yeah. when I worked in a big firm, I started doing work for high-frequency traders. So folks who would build these computer algorithms to execute automatically on various market signals. And FINRA and the SEC came out and said, well, wait a minute, hang on, hang on. We think that you're committing fraud. And we were able to largely convince regulators that what they were seeing wasn't fraud. It was just very fast. And what we were able to do was look at the code, look to mm -hmm. see exactly what they were doing to demonstrate, well, that what they were doing was in compliance with the law. It was just something new, something that they hadn't seen before. And we were pretty successful in convincing regulators to say, okay, fine, we, we get that. Maybe that's not a violation. So we're doing that, a lot of that in, in the sort of 2010s era. 
at some point during this era, I, I read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper on Bitcoin. And my first thought, this is how you know I'm a, a regulatory enforcement lawyer at heart and not a technologist. <laughs> I was like, yeah, the technology is cool, but regulators are going to hate this. Mm. They're going to hate it. And they did. It took them a little, it took them a few years to catch on, but they hated it. So we started doing some advisory work in this space, telling people what they could and couldn't be doing with a blank slate of regulation in the space, really mm-hmm. just looking at the Howey test, the Reeves test, and figuring out how they would apply to these new and interesting ideas. And then the, the practice really took off in 2017 after the SEC formed its new cyber unit. Uh, we represented the defendants in the first case that that newly formed unit brought. And mm. since then, there's been an explosion over the last five years of both you know, enforcement and litigation, as well as advisory work, trying to help clients stay out of the crosshairs of the regulators. So it's been a crazy five years. And this year, let's just say that the litigation and enforcement front is still uh, going gangbusters. There's there's a lot of work going on. Yeah, listening to some of the prediction podcasts at the year's end and kind of in the beginning of where do we go from here? I'm not really keen on predictions because in this space, unless it's trying to predict tomorrow, like forget about it. I don't want to go on record with any particularly hard stance unless I'm willing to die on that hill. But I know that your clients financially do not want to die on on the hill. And there's so literally and figuratively. And there's so many people not on the fringes of no regulation ever live off the grid. Great. This would never have been a conversation for you. And there would be no buy-in to reasonable regulation in the space for people who aren't interested in it. And you have a ton of people in the middle who just want to leverage innovation, certainly have the states or wherever they're from at the forefront of it. And there are concerns there, but being very skittish and the chilling effect, I guess, as we say in the law, for those who want to do the right thing, if only they knew it and are kind of afraid to step up and say, hey, this is what we're doing because they see the 50 or so others who did so and came out with sanctions or settlements and things like that. So I know that's a big part, but just to kind of set the stage here, and I certainly kind of touched the surface of the work that you do in the crypto space. So thank you for that. That helps to right-size the combo. Let's talk about before where we are and some of the would-be predictions about what we saw as, and I mentioned it earlier, some of the more promising bipartisan legislation that would have led to perhaps either new enabling legislation or amended uh, enabling legislation getting agencies. And definitely that aspect has cooled a bit as well. Some of the big things that you think from last year of, of wow, that is one of those cases of separate and apart from FTX and all of that stuff. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. So last year was a really interesting confluence of events, right? You you had 
a building up of legislation coming from Congress. We, we saw drafts floating around of the, the RFIA and the DCCPA, which were two sort of competing visions for how the space should get regulated. There was a, a lot of good overlap between them. There's some parts that wouldn't have worked well together, but you could see some sort of coalition in Congress forming to come out behind some sort of legislation that would help set some rules of the game for cryptocurrency specifically. Mm-hmm. And you know, there, there's also a stablecoin bill floating around that would focus more crisply on stablecoins. I think that to take a step back from that, that legislation is necessary because cryptocurrency right now is this giant lacuna in the law. Mm-hmm. Every time I say that, or every time people complain about the SECs doing regulation by enforcement, the SEC would respond by saying, no, the law has been clear for 90 years. Every decade or so, someone comes along with some newfangled doohickey and says, this is different. This isn't a security. It's a bluhala. And, you know, everyone says, look, we've had these tests, the Howey test for 90 years. We've had the, the securities laws in effect since 33 and 34. They're designed to be flexible and accommodate these new blue ha-has. Mm-hmm. And the crypto is no different. So you get to this fundamental and very interesting metaphysical question. Is cryptocurrency different? Is it something where we can say, nope, you can apply the old tests and just move on? Or is there something that's fundamentally different about it that says, actually, we need different legislation because our securities laws and regulations and our commodities laws and regulations and our payments laws and regulations don't quite work for what it does? I'm very firmly in that latter camp. I do not think the regulations work for what is essentially software but that is programmable so that at times it can take on the nature of a payments instrument or a commodity or a security or a future or a derivative or any one of a number of things or combine them and be that and then not that and then that again. The laws were not intended to deal with this. So I do think that we need new kinds of laws. And as a result, just to say, We're going to enforce against wrongdoers and build up our legion of no. These are all things you can't do. All right, well, that's nice, but it doesn't give the industry much guidance as to what they can do to really build all of this. And when I hear people saying, we've had the same rules for 90 years, they've worked for everything, you know, I'm trying to imagine the the time lag between the Satoshi white paper and now Mm. is about the same time lag as the invention of the first automobile to when Henry Ford was rolling out cars Mm. off an assembly line. And I can't imagine the Secretary of Transportation in the 1920s, if we had a Department of Transportation, which we didn't, (laughs) but I can't imagine that person standing up and saying, the same rules have worked for us for 90 years. Everyone just uses the same rules as horses and buggies, and, and those are the rules, and that's what it's going to be. And you can't imagine what the country would have been if they had looked at the technological innovation of the automobile and said, nope, we're going to use all the horse and buggy era rules no matter what. It really would have stunted incredible avenues of growth that that you couldn't possibly have imagined in 1920. Everything from not just, you know, us tooling around driving today, but 
trucks delivering fresh food all over the country to supermarkets everywhere, right? These sorts of innovations you would not have thought of. So we come to today and when I hear people saying, this is just the same old thing, it's just another brouhaha and we should just use the same rules and regulations. I think people are fundamentally missing the technological innovation leap. And if we don't take account of it and don't create rules that help people develop it or incubate their technologies, we're going to be left behind. Europe is doing it. Singapore is doing it. Caymans and BVI have done Mm -hmm. it. Other people are accommodating the technologies in ways that will protect consumers, which we absolutely want to do, but also allow this technology to thrive and develop. I think that we're missing the boat on what we're doing right now in America. I think that's extremely well said and explained. And I love that analogy. I've not heard it before, though I'm putting the final touches on my book, Digital Money Demystified. It's coming out in the fall. And so as a part of developing various aspects, essentially each chapter is a myth. And in the beginning, going back through all of those moments in innovation, where especially, obviously, we can see the analogy between some of the things that were said in the early Web 2.0 days and pulled out the old footage from like Bryant Gumbel and Katie when they were trying <laughs> to figure out the internet or the mail and they called like, you know, a younger staffer to come explain it. And here we are again, right? It's so old that it's new. But all of these other inventive leaps where people are way far ahead and things will fail until you iterate to a proper place when I think of early markets and how they are volatile. But as you inject more liquidity and more confidence and more frameworks and more guardrails, it matures if it's supposed to mature or it dies. That's a perfect point. And it takes us to the lessons of 2022, as we referred to, right? So on the one hand, you've got this legislation brewing around in Congress. It hasn't gone anywhere, but it's been brewing. And on the other hand, you had a series of market events, which were, let's face it, it was a terrible year in the crypto markets. You had the Terra Luna ecosystem collapsing, which in part led to the collapse of Three Arrows, which in part led to the collapse of FTX. Mm -hmm. And FTX is leading to all sorts of other messes in the markets. Right. So when, when you have all of these kinds of things, there are a couple of natural reactions. So one, some legislators say, see, it's all bad. We should just be banning it all. And they're not very thoughtful about the legislation that they're passing. You have some other legislators who say, see, here are some very specific things that are bad. So we need to account for those things. But also we need to create a positive path so that this stuff doesn't get bad again. And that's a a, a more nuanced and more responsible take. Mm -hmm. And I, I very much appreciate that take. I think that one of the problems is you know, politicians get a little bit nervous. You know, FTX collapses and a lot of people lose money and a lot of you know retail folks lost money. Absolutely. A- and, you know, politicians want to say that this is terrible. This should not be happening. You know, we want to make sure this never happens again. But nobody's quite sure why or how it happened or how to make it happen again. And that's going to take a few years to sort yeah. out. But I think the important part here, as, as you alluded to, is the analogy to the early Internet era. Like just because Cosmo.com blew up in, in 2000 right. or 2001 doesn't mean that the Internet is over. Right? right. So we have a few major companies blowing up in 2022 in, in the crypto space. But that doesn't mean that the fundamentals of the technology 
are over or different. And if you compare where we were just with the internet from 2000, 2001 right. to where we are today, you can imagine that type of technological growth in blockchain and digital assets, not just cryptocurrency, but digital assets writ as a much larger category. Right. It's when you have assets that are effectively programmable to the limits of your imagination, we can't even imagine what it's going to look like 20 years from now, the same way we can't imagine back in 2000 doing right. a, a, a podcast like this where we met online on this social media site and that we can right. see each other, you know, by videos. This was still science fiction in, in, in 2000 when Cosmo.com blew up. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking as you're talking about even being, remember, I, I started law school in 1995. And when I think of even being at Northwestern before, and I feel like I was still going to the computer lab. I feel like that was still a thing. Trying to remember when I first, because I was, I tended to be an early adopter of things. I remember having a big giant phone that I wore on my shoulder and I'm not sure who I was calling (laughs) thousands of dollars a minute, but I was the cool kid in the block. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember this idea of going to the computer lab or even in the early days of law school when I had, I certainly had a PC at home. I wasn't printing a bunch of stuff out there. I'm going over to the library to print stuff out, you know? No, exactly. They they, they rolled out uh, email for, you know, the comp sci folks in 92 and for the Mm -hmm. rest of the student body in 93 when when I was in college and you had to go to the computer lab to, to use it. Right. And the only people whose email addresses we knew were our friends who could also only go to the computer lab. So, you know, you'd have a hundred people sitting in this big <laughs> hall emailing each other while we were in the hall. In the hall. <laughs> because we did, there's no one else we knew how, how to email. And then just a few years, you know, then I, I went and got a master's degree and went to Japan to work. And then I, when I came back and I was in law school, I remember they rolled out wired Ethernet in the classrooms in yes. nine or 2000. So I, I remember sitting in Jane Ginsburg's copyright class mm-hmm. in the back row. I think the statute of limitations has expired. So we were sitting there illegally downloading MP3s <laughs> on LimeWire or Kazaa. While my, we were my client has no further comment. <laughs> <laughs> while we were learning about, you know, the copyright case against Napster and, and having a, a lively class discussion on can the law, and this is perfectly relevant to what we're dealing with, can the law deal with these new technologies? And some people in the classroom, including Professor Ginsburg, who's brilliant and I, and I love her, she was very confident like this, the law will deal with it. These are copyright violations, copyright cases will be brought and these platforms will be squashed. And my question was, another platform will come and right. then another and then another. How do you deal with that problem? And the answer from a formal, a formalist in law is say, well, there'll be another litigation and another litigation. We'll just keep squashing them until people realize that you can't do this anymore. And that's not what killed LimeWire and Kazaa. Like iTunes killed those because Apple came out with a system that was easy to use, that was cheap, that was intuitive. And everyone said, okay, this works and it's legal. We'll do it this way. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to now, right? If I can fork Uniswap or Compound or Aave in an afternoon and re-release my own version of it, right. there is no way that a regulator can say, we're not going to allow this to happen, right? You've got a few court cases where uh, you know, people are seeking orders against effectively software protocols. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking to myself, 
what will happen? The judge will order something to happen. It won't happen. It can't happen. It literally cannot happen. And the protocol will continue to exist as it has. The right answer in some of these questions, and coming from a lawyer, this pains me to say, the right answer is not law. The right answer is not litigation, as Mm -hmm. as much as it pains the litigator to say. (laughs) There have to be other answers, and some of those answers are going to be legislative, and some will be regulatory compromises with the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that denying both the fundamental newness of the technology, as we talked about, but also the things that make it difficult to regulate with the current tools that regulators have. Mm -hmm. I think if regulators are not taking account of those, they're going to be pushing rocks uphill that, that will roll back on them time and time and time again. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Dr. Tanya M. Evans, author of Digital Money Demystified. And I want to let you know that to stay on the leading edge of any opportunity, especially investing, you have to empower yourself with the tools and resources needed to keep your knowledge and skills current. And if you're relying on last year's information or even last month's, look, you're already behind. Sure, you can try to figure this out on your own at YouTube University. The problem is it's difficult to separate fact from fiction with so many carnival barkers banking on your inexperience. And of course, there are the naysayers, usually from legacy finance, banking on your fear while they quietly help their high net worth clients to invest. All of it muddies the waters when all you want to know is how to get in safely, legally and confidently so you're not left behind. That's why I wrote Digital Money Demystified where I take the top 10 crypto myths head on and give you well-researched, well-supported facts to empower you to make good choices out there in the new digital cash economy. As a law professor who developed the first blockchain crypto and law online certificate program, a retail and corporate crypto policy and education trainer, and a thought leader appearing regularly on national media, I've done the heavy lifting so you don't have to. Look, there are plenty of books and courses on which crypto assets to invest in. Digital Money Demystified is the book you read before you dive into those. So head to digitalmoneydemystified.com to learn more and prepare for the future of money and wealth today. It's such a great discussion when you look back those late 90s, those early 2000s, and it makes me think of some of the the core technologies at the heart of this as well. You think certainly about peer-to-peer technology. (laughs) We're just, you know, we're still having those conversations. We're thinking of methods of consensus that are software enabled. We're thinking of cryptographic encryption of messages that are decades and decades old at this point, and this novel combination of them to create this. So for this specific purpose to go beyond any ability to kind of turn it off, kind of the blessing and the curse, but the power and the potential of it. And when we look back on this time, it will really be exciting to be on the forefront and to also uh, see how things will shake out when you have actions and enforcements against technology. As a matter of First Amendment, I'm concerned about it. As a matter of privacy, I'm concerned about it. When I think about tornado cash, wondering about your thoughts Because as you were describing at a high level, like forbidding American citizens to use this technology, but the technology persists. 
So how do you right size it? What I wanted to ask you and forgot about earlier, checking the time. So I'll be certainly mindful of it for you because we both could go on all day, but I have to ask <laughs> when you think about uh, moves against technology rather than enforcing bad behaviors that are already criminal and illegal. It certainly makes me think of what is alleged against in the indictments against Sam Bankman Freed, for example. That's one of the fastest roundups I've ever seen. I think it took a lot longer to get Madoff into, you know, under indictment than it did in this instance. And maybe that speaks to it. This was also, in my humble opinion, I think you agree, definitely not a failure of, of crypto or the technology. It's something that's kind of like old thing done same thing alleged with new technology, right? But a long way around the bend to ask you your thoughts about sandboxes, legislative or regulatory sandboxes, and why, other than at the state level with some crypto-friendly states, that federal government has not leaned into or created opportunities for legislative or regulatory sandboxes that would enable a type of protection mixed with protection of innovation. I think they should, and I think that they haven't, as you rightly point out. So you have some states that are more friendly, Wyoming and some other states have Dow LLC statutes, which don't quite adapt to the reality of a truly decentralized, autonomous organization, and they more treat it like an LLC that can vote on chain. Right. But you do have some states that are are moving that in that direction or considering having different kinds of regulatory sandboxes. That's helpful. I think the Wyoming efforts are helpful, except, of course, Wyoming, you know, I'm, I'm from Colorado, so I'll make fun of my neighbor to the north. Wyoming has no people. Like, unless you, all you <laughs> want to do is financial transactions with half a million cattle, there, there's not a lot of people in Wyoming and you can't go past the borders of Wyoming. So there are limitations right. to, to what Wyoming can do. It really does call out for federal solutions if not, frankly, global solutions, given right. that this technology is as borderless as a technology can be. I think that to have it at a national level would be important. And you see some angling towards that in Europe's MECA, the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulations, right. where they're taking the approach to token issuers to say, come on in, register with us. You have to do a, a simple white paper. It's not long. It's five pages or something. Tell us who you are what your plan is, some basic disclosures, what's your model, what's your tokenomics, and then you can go. You can do mm -hmm. it. And it allows people to come in in this experimental way, in a way that will allow regulators to watch them. So if these guys are bad guys who rug pull, or if they turned out not to have disclosed the information, there will be accountability for that. Right. But what we're doing is not that. We're saying no sandboxes, you just have to fully register. And Chair Gensler goes on MSNBC and says people could register if they wanted to. It's just a form on our webpage. And like, yes, the S1 is indeed a form on the SEC's webpage. Right. And anyone who's ever tried to fill one of those out and get it approved by the SEC, which is one of the other parts here, it is an, an approval process. You, you can't just fill it out and say, okay, I'm good. I'm done. It has to be approved. But it's an incredibly complicated form that takes a lot of time, a lot of cost, a lot of lawyer hours to get done. So it's mm -hmm. not something that startups can easily do. This technology for now is still very much a startup technology. It's something that you can have three people in a dorm room 
start a DEX that will attract $100 million in investment overnight. Easy technology to launch. And that should be something that we embrace, that we want to embrace, not just because we love it, but because we want to make sure it doesn't get out into the wild and cause great damage. So I mean embrace right. in, in sort of both of those ways. I think the way Europe is approaching it is like a large sandbox, not quite a sandbox, but it's a very large sandbox. I right. think we should be doing something like that. We're not. And the result is going to be that either people will do it in Europe or do it elsewhere. And if so, that's probably fine for consumers. Or, and here's my worry, people are going to say, well, I can't comply with the law, so I just won't. I'll ignore mm. the law. I'll do it offshore. I'll do it anonymously or pseudonymously. No one will know who I am. The SEC can't find me, can't catch me. And I got to say, even if those people start with the best of intentions, and most of them have good intentions, that's a disaster for American retail, American consumers to have people who are effectively beyond the reach of any kind of law, no matter what they do. And, you know, as much as the crypto libertarians would say, that's the ideal, baby. Awesome. That's (laughs) that's not where I am. and That's not where 99% of this industry is. I think people want to be in compliance. They want to be good with the government. They want to be uh, left to be able to build and develop, but there currently isn't a path to do that. And it's incredibly frustrating for builders. It's very frustrating when people come to me and say, how can we do this legally? And I have to say, I've been doing this five years. I've been, I'm one of the people who's deepest in this space. I know every case, I know every regulation, and I'm going to tell you, I have no idea. And that's a very frustrating place for the industry to be. And so used to having everything in front of them right away that we forget that innovation just takes time. I, I myself, I get frustrated too. Why? And you know, this is being one of my best friends is, hey, I talk to you all the time. Hey, man, I'm frustrated in the fact that I can't seem to just get there in mm-hmm. the next day. But that's just not how these things work, right? Innovation needs to be planned out. It needs to be very methodical. And then when it finally hits, that's when it seems like to everyone else that it it sort of just came out of nowhere. But to you, you know the amount of dedication that it took over that time. And it seems that in the absence of legislation, for those who don't fully appreciate most of the agencies and certainly agencies under the executive branch get their power from statutes that are passed by Congress. And we call it organic act or enabling legislation that enables the existence of these regulatory bodies. And there's kind of a whole agency state within. Some are directly at the cabinet level, some under, some operate independently. Come take my administrative law class if you'd like more information. Um, For our purposes here, it's playing the counter argument of happy to do something different as the head of an agency, but this is what I have to work with. And if you want me to do something different, Congress, then tell me to do something different because you enabled me to not only create rules and the rulemaking process, but the ability to have an enforcement power too. And so this is what we see from the SEC and using kind of this case-by-case interaction as opposed to the more substantive rulemaking that would actually be a law that would apply to everyone, not just that particular entity. 
So in the absence of that, what are agencies left to do? So you know, the, the major agencies that are involved here, particularly the SEC and the CFTC, they do have a rulemaking process. So they're clearly bound by statute, right? The SEC is bound to the 33 Act, the 34 Act, the 40 Act. They kind of have to do what they have to do under those statutes. But those statutes give them significant regulatory authority. And most of the issues that we have are not statutory issues. They're mm-hmm. regulatory issues. They're rulemaking issues. Something like Section 10B of the 34 Act, you're not allowed to commit, thou shalt not commit fraud, right? <laughs> Nobody's got a problem with that, at least if they do, right. you know, <laughs> we, we don't care, right? That you, right. You, you shouldn't have a problem with that. But when you face issues about, you know, you have to register something, and then when you have more than 2,000 holders of it, you have to do something. Or you have a lockup period of a year, and then under Rule 144, you have to take actions one, two, three, in order to make it no longer a restricted security if it was originally issued as a restricted security. These are all regulations. These are all rules. These are not part of the statutes. So the SEC could undergo a traditional rulemaking process where they release a rule, there's a notice period, there's an opportunity for comment on it. They're going through this right now with custody. They're broadening the definition of qualified custodians and what registered uh, investment advisors have to do to, to safeguard customer assets. And those assets in the old rules were securities and cash. And the SEC's proposal is to broaden that into any assets, which would include crypto, but also anything else that an RA might be holding, whether it's mm-hmm. gold or Corvettes or baseball cards or you know expensive guitars or whatever. So they're going through this process with the custody rules. I think that they could be going through that process with regard to other regulations as well. They're just choosing not to because, frankly, that process is a lot of work. And, you know, let's face it, the the crypto markets are 1% of the overall equity markets and an even smaller percent of the overall capital markets. So in some ways, it makes sense for the SEC to say, you know something, those guys are tiny. We're not going to care about them. We'll just shut them all down. We're going to focus on what's really important over here in our traditional markets. Like, Mm. I, I can get that. I can understand that. But I think it's short sighted because ultimately digital assets will eat the world, right? Mm -hmm. Already securities are all digital. They're digitized over at DTCC. The money you spend in your pocket, you may have some green paper, but when you put it into the bank, you don't actually have a pile of green paper sitting, you know, behind the teller that with your name on it, right? It's just a digital record and a digital ledger. If you have a, a mutual fund, you have a digital record of a digital asset that is a fractional digital record of a digital asset, right? Digital assets are going to be every part of this. And I I think for the SEC to say that's small, it's not thinking about what the capital markets look like in five years, 10 years, or 20 years. I think that's very well stated. I want you to come back in about six months and let's I'm just going to have the same questions. We're going to do the same thing and see where we are. Thank you so much for joining. I'm wondering how listeners can learn more about you and your firm and your work, because your voice is really essential in a space. I'm glad that we had the chance to not just have this conversation, but to bond and to completely geek out and have the benefit of other people listening to us go on. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been a pleasure. For more information on me, you can just Google me and my firm name, Jason Gottlieb Morrison Cohen. That's the quickest way. You'll see more about uh, me and the work that I do and the work that my firm does. You can find me on Twitter. I wish now that I had a more intuitive <laughs> Twitter handle. I do not. It's at Ohio, O-H-A-I-O-M. And if you have me back in six months, there's a long and absolutely unexpected, interesting story behind that Twitter handle. And I'll, I'll share it with you then. Oh, that's a good teaser. Oh, one more thing. Tell them about your litigation tracker. Which I use it in my classes all the time. Absolutely. So so my team and I run the Morrison Cohen cryptocurrency litigation tracker, but it's, it's, it's a lot more than a litigation. We keep a list of every regulatory action, SEC, CFTC, DOJ, FinCEN, some other regulators, a few from FTC on there. We keep, keep track of all the major private litigation, not everyone, because that's already starting to eat the world as well. Major regulatory pronouncements. It's really a compendium, a record of everything that's going on in the digital assets and crypto litigation and regulatory world. We started this back in 2017 where I thought, oh, there are a lot of things going on. Let me start keeping track for myself. And I figured I could just write it down on the legal pad. And I got to the third <laughs> right. page of the legal pad and said, actually, there's a lot going on. Let me systematize this. And we just kept it going. And eventually we made it a, a public resource. So it, it's a very useful way to see, hey, has this ever been litigated before? Because frankly, it probably has. So there's right. a, a, a lot of materials from that. It's grown. It's, you know, over well over 150 pages at this point. And we always love to issue, a, we do new public editions of it once a quarter. And if anyone out there sees a case that they know of that that's not on the tracker, send it to us. We'll add it on. <laughs> we would really like it to be a something good for the community to be able to use and build with just a, a helpful resource. I think there's a builder's ethos uh, where we're all building in public in this space. And that's this is the way we can contribute in that way. I love that. I will definitely include a link in the show notes for this. It is a, an extraordinary resource. I got into the space in late 2017, but really earnestly in 2018 and have referred back to that, use it in classes. And it makes those papers and those presentations way better. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Selfishly, I must thank you as well, Jason Godley. Thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Tech Intersect podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you love it, please tell the world. If not, go ahead and tell me. And in either case, drop a comment or ping me on social media at IPProfEvans with the hashtag TechIntersect. And finally, a quick reminder on digital safety. There are a lot of scammers out there impersonating me and others, and I need your help. Now hear this. And remember, I will never slide into your DMs to say peace and blessings or hey, and I will never reach out to solicit your time or your money on social media like ever. I'm not a trader. I am an educator and an attorney licensed in four states. Thank you very much. I'm here to inform, inspire, and empower. No cap. 
and definitely no Forex. So be careful, make good choices, and remember, I developed an entire free masterclass about the topic of digital safety in the crypto space. So check out secureyourcryptobag.com for more information. That's secureyourcryptobag.com. All right, that's all for this episode. Until next time, continue to shine.